everybody, welcome back to the 53rd episode of Taps and Patience. I am AJ with Design the Everything here with Harrison of Precision Ingenuity. And we have Uriel Eisen. Is that your last name? Eisen, I'm sorry. That is. I bumbled that. Uriel Eisen from uh, Austere Manufacturing and more recently, the Incremental Podcast. Um, how are you doing? I am great. Yeah. Thanks for uh, inviting me on here. Excited to talk shop and business and um, yeah, see where the yeah, conversation I'm, goes. I'm super glad you could join us. I believe you are actually the first guest we ever invited, except maybe Sir Ben. We may have oh, invited cool. Sir Ben first, but other than him, he, you're the first like non-friend that we have invited on. Nice. Not you're not a friend. But... <laughs> we'll get there. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're apparently just so popular that you put off coming on, so we appreciate you making time. Uh, it's been a crazy, uh, I don't know. I mean, small business is maybe always crazy, just uh, pretty packed the last few months. And, um, you know, yeah, I'm glad to finally got an opportunity to jump on here. So, so would, you, would you start by giving us a quick background on Austere Manufacturing? What do you make and uh, how do you make it? Yeah, so uh, we manufacture um, high-performance buckles, um, think like the adjusters on a backpack um, or a strap for strapping things to your bike, um, to your pack when hunting, like tying stuff, you know, organizing stuff, uh, like overlanding rigs, um, a lot of EDC uh, folks kind of like our stuff. Um, a lot of people use them as belts. Um, so yeah, little um, CNC machined uh, aluminum buckles is what we do. Um, my background, I, I did a lot of work in, um, in like prototyping for startups and did a lot of soft goods over the years. And in doing that, um, was always pretty frustrated with the buckles. And so I finally, uh, I did some work uh, designing spacesuits for NASA and in that industry, they um, you know, weight is important and strength is very important. And so they design all their own buckles. After seeing that, I was like, you know what, I'm just going to dust off some of these designs and buy a CNC mill and uh, see what I can do. Um, the first product we launched um, was a three quarter inch cam buckle, um, which is a buckle that's already available on the market, but they're just very heavy. So they're all die cast. Um, and so by CNCing it, uh, we were able to get the weight way down. And so suddenly it's a really viable piece of hardware for like human powered adventures. You know, they're, they're really light, really small, so you can fit them in your pocket. You can add some, you know, to your bike and without, without sacrificing a lot of weight. Um, so that's kind of what we've been doing. And then, um, that product kind of took off in a way we weren't really expecting. And so just sort of try to keep up with demand. Um, and finally, we've started launching some new products uh, here and there. Um, you know, I think we're up to a total of three. So, uh, <laughs> you know, four. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, I have a lot of other ideas, um, buckles that over the years I kind of wanted to exist. And so we kind of tackled some of the, uh, I don't know if easy is quite the word, but there's some that have sort of a longer development cycle. And so... Hopefully we'll mix in those with a bunch of like little things that people really want. Like um, uh, if you, if you're into sewing or you look at your backpack, right? Like sometimes there's just like a loop of plastic that's joining two straps. Like that's not going to be hard mm -hmm. to make, but um, 
you know, just sort of filling out the product line with some of that stuff. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of it. Um, if you want to check them out, we're on Instagram, share a bunch of stuff there and austeremfg.com. Um, you can see a bunch of photos and try to share some of the process. Um, and then you said how we make them. So we're doing all, um, all CNC machined. Um, we've set up some fun automation on our mill, which is like very low cost, relatively speaking like everything in machining um and it's all relative yeah <laughs> yeah people are like man machines are the cheap part and you're like are they though i don't know <laughs> they sort of are on a per month basis but big chunk of cash um yeah so that, that's kind of austere in a nutshell um yeah cool so did you have much machining background before you started then? Cause it sounds like you did some, some work, but were you doing the design side or were you actually machining the parts for say NASA, which by the way, I would reach out to some of those connections and see if you can get some of your buckles in space, because that would be awesome <laughs> promotional material. Definitely a personal goal is to get the buckles in space. Um, a few spacesuit designers do have samples. Um, so yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll report back. Um, that'll be a, a good day. Um, so I grew up building stuff like probably everyone else on this podcast, um, tinkering. And my dad uh, had a shop full. He's sort of more, more of a woodworker. So we had a lot of those tools. Um, so I, I would like do turned parts and stuff by putting a steel rod in a drill press and then using like files and an angle, uh, an angle grinder. And then the first time I saw a manual mill and a lathe, I was like, I know exactly what I'm going to do here. Um, so that was very exciting. So <laughs> when I went to college, it was the first time I got my hands on like proper machining equipment um, and got really into like high precision machining, uh, mostly on the theory side, uh, you know, and then, just it was very interesting to me about the field of like high precision machining is basically you need um, good technique mixed with like fundamentally sound designs and what's interesting about that to me is as you go to like even not you know regular precision machining like fundamentally sound designs alleviate a lot of uh you know artificial artificially driven or sort of need for precision Right. Um, so um, that I sort of dove into the, um, yeah, read a lot of books on, on that stuff and uh, found that super interesting. Um, I then built like prototypes for different uh, startups for a bunch of years. And what would happen inevitably is I'd make some stuff, uh, you know, make like one to 10 pieces for someone. They do user testing. And they'd be like, great, we want to do like a bigger pilot. Can you make us whatever 50? And I was like, you don't want to pay me to manually machine this stuff. Or, you know, I had like a router table that I'd like make templates and then do different like, you know, two and a half D machining with like follower bits and, you know, make molds for like vacuum forming or whatever. Um, and so I kind of made the decision to get into CNC because it just felt like there was a lot of uh, opportunity there where people wanted more stuff and then I could just kind of hit go um, is, is the, the naive, you know, <laughs> hit, the, hit the green button, you get a part. Um, 
And so that was that. Um, I moved to uh, New York to build out a prototyping space for NYU um, for their startup accelerator. So set that up and in the process kind of dove into more CNC stuff. Um, really the limiting factor for me was uh, CAD. Um, I was always, you know, the learning curve is kind of steep, especially if you're pretty proficient in the shop. Cause you're like, why would I spend five days banging my head against the wall if I could just go make this in like three hours? Um, so that was a bit of a barrier. So, um, yeah, so once I sort of forced myself to just sit down and work on it, uh, yeah, got, got decent at CAD. And then uh, when I moved out to Seattle, uh, beginning of the pandemic, I bought a, uh, um, I was going to buy a CNC router parts, like they're smaller, full extrusion. It's all aluminum, so relatively more rigid. I was running one of their bigger routers in Brooklyn. Um, then I was like, oh, maybe a Tormach. Okay, maybe a Haas. And then I bought a uh, Brother Speedio. Um, and yeah, just, just skyrocket ahead of everyone. Yeah. Just, yeah, yeah, just, just, just plow ahead and like, well, don't pass go, don't click $200, just straight to the top. Yeah. There's a lot of appealing things about the machine. So, um, yeah, I, I kind of like, I knew I wanted a fourth axis because I did a lot of three axis, like just, it felt like a big waste of time to spend a lot of effort in design to eliminate another op. And then, of course, you know, just like everyone else, then you're like, man, a tool changer would also because you're trying to like machine it in an order where you're not constantly changing back and forth. So I kind of decided like I wanted a tool changer. I wanted a fourth. So then I was looking at like the mini mill. Um, and then anyway, uh, talked to some people who sort of ran some production on a mini mill and I think chip management. I don't know if they fixed it maybe on the newer ones. I don't really know, but I heard some complaints well, about chip evacuation yeah i used the mini mill at a local university and i just dug out all the chips on it because uh, it the students don't really clean it out okay and i was it, it took me probably half hour to an hour to clean it all out just because it was such a pain um, yeah part of that has to do with how close it was to a wall and how <laughs> they oriented it so that was half the problem but the other half of the problem was just trying to get underneath the trying to get everything actually pulled through was kind of a pain in the butt. Interesting. Um, so I could definitely see how it would be kind of a, if you didn't have an auger system on it, um, it would be very challenging to clean out um, if you had to do it on a regular basis. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that was kind of the story with um, getting into machining. Um so I had like a fairly good like manual machining background and then uh, spent like a year plus messing around with a CNC router, which sort of solidified the like CAD cam workflow for me. Um, and then, yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like if you're willing to break some end mills, it's not too difficult. Like I'm doing mostly aluminum also, which makes it quite a bit easier, mm -hmm. I think. Um but yeah, no, really uh, loving, loving programming machines to uh, make stuff like the repetitive side. Like I was in prototyping largely because I like you make it once. You're like, all right, yes, it needs tweaks, but I know how I do all of them. Like it's just not as interesting to me. Um, but when all that's sort of like, you know, programming and then the machine sort of runs, um, 
yeah, really, really enjoying that. So in your job history, you described, I don't think you mentioned a single like traditional job. Have mm-hmm. you, have you um, had a traditional job working for an, um, a, a normal company or have you always been a um, entrepreneur? I guess the most normal job was working for NYU. Um, yeah. So besides that, like I've done some sort of longer contracts as a sort of consultant, you know, contract work. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, besides that, kind of always been doing my own thing. That's definitely pretty unique from what, what, from a lot of people we've talked to. They've all had traditional jobs and then quit and started their own thing. So that's kind of cool that you've kind of been on your own so long and you just found something new. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's it's been fun. I mean, so I started a uh, did a startup right out of school, um, end of junior year, uh, and ended up like raising uh, quite a bit of money in Silicon Valley and kind of working through like international supply chains, uh, and then coming out of that, uh, it was kind of clear to me that we had a substantial advantage um, having a lot of. Uh, prototyping capability in-house, like just watching a lot of uh, startups around us who had maybe good designers, but the fact that they couldn't turn around prototypes quickly just slowed everyone down so much. And so I kind of just like when we wound down the startup, kind of just started taking work with other people where they're like, hey, we need these. Do you know how to, you know, do you know someone who can make them? And I'm like, yeah, I can can do that. Uh, And that was yeah, pretty pretty fun, pretty interesting. Um, what kind of made me want to go into like actually doing end to end product instead of um, sort of contracting with other people was that uh, total control, end to end control, because um, it just feel it feels like when you hand off a product or someone comes to you and it's like, hey, can you make this piece? And you're like. I think if we just totally redesigned the approach, that would be better. And they're like, that's really not what we're hiring you for. And so you end up working on stuff where you're like, okay, or you make a prototype and then you walk, like they take it over to Asia to manufacture it. And there's a lot of decisions that then get made and you're not on the team. So you're not part of that. And then you see the finished thing and you're like, man, if I had been there, like we could have just made some better decisions around like what their preferred whatever dimensions are because they have this machine instead of that machine. Okay. Yeah. That's totally easy to accommodate, but instead um, decisions get made that are not super ideal. So it's sort of fun to like have the complete end to end, uh, you know, control on the whole thing. Um, And then like getting into, you know, even, even to like the sales and marketing and the effect of that on like leveling production and all that stuff. um, I don't know they're all problems and I feel like problem solving is kind of what I enjoy. So speaking of problem solving, you seem to have gotten fairly invested in lean at least. Well, I'm going to say recently, but that's just my experience of uh, the public end of what you're doing. When did you first start uh, going down the the lean rabbit hole and what, what drove you there? Um, yeah, so growing up, I always kind of joked that I was all about efficiency. Um, and so like as a kid, we would do a lot of sort of like process stuff. Um, but then coming out of college and stuff, 
you know, people aren't always that interested, I think. Like, it's sort of like, yeah, yeah, that's cool. But really, let's do the work. And I think it was always exciting to me, sometimes to a fault, to sort of stop what we're doing and redesign how we're doing it. And obviously, there's times where that's appropriate and times where that's not really what needs to happen. Um, And so I was always kind of interested in like putting substantial effort into like instead of cleaning like building shelves so that things have a place instead of just like arbitrarily sort of like neatening up but then it's not neat very quickly because nothing actually has a place um so i was always sort of more invested in like building out the system and more interested in that um and when i started making the buckles as i mentioned it kind of took off and so i got stuck behind a cnc mill many hours of many days and i really did not enjoy that um i think before the podcast you you were like you know ask you about like forget if you said like failures or like low points of the company of the business i'd say that was a low point (laughs) i was like really did i just like successfully land myself this job (laughs) like this is not fun (laughs) um and so I don't remember how I actually found, I think I read the Toyota production system as the first book. Maybe someone recommended it to me. I don't remember exactly how I found that book or came across it, but um, in reading it, it was very, um, it was exciting to me that, that companies have, have had such success in, in doing the thing I kind of wanted to do, but I was sort of being told slash telling myself, like, maybe don't do that all the time. Like, maybe you should just stand behind the machine and make parts and not uh, sort of stop everything for two weeks and get like a pneumatic gripper. Um, And and so I I think, yeah, it was just really exciting. I was like, I need to know more about this. So kind of just started reading all the books I could find on that and started implementing a lot of those ideas in the shop. a lot of it's very counterintuitive, especially when you first read about it. I feel like we're so steeped in sort of like, um, you know, mass production and Henry Ford is something people are familiar with. And it's like, wow, the more you make, the faster it is. And that's very intuitive and something I feel like we all have experience with. Um, but uh, there's less of an awareness of the full system and so trying to like, I don't know, uh, for me, like once I have an idea that I'm sort of wrestling with until it makes sense and clicks, I like get pretty, pretty, uh, obsessed with it. So, um, yeah. And then all these like, oh, you know, I probably came across like, uh, Paul Akers. I think I found his like fast cap lean tour on YouTube and then, and then like Googled the book and that's, I think how I sort of found it or maybe it was, um, Pearson. It could have been that lean tour of his shop. And I was like, that is awesome. Um, And especially the part about like taking time every day to work on the process, because realistically, like sort of a love hate relationship with orders, because you're like, oh, now I need to make that instead of like all these other cool things. (laughs) Like I already know how to make, you know, I know how to make a buckle. So, um, and then just, uh, like I probably wouldn't have lasted this long making the same one product virtually for coming on up on three years, if not for like the, um, the, yeah, added challenge of, and, and the constant problem solving of, 
of like uh, process refinement and just continuous improvement. So yeah, I mean, once I found the books, I was pretty excited to find out that like what I wanted to do was a good call. Uh-oh. Um, we seem to have lost Ariel for a second here. I'm going to pause. So while we are waiting for Ariel to get back, uh, I forgot to do something at the beginning of the podcast, and that is our um, creator spotlight or maker spotlight, whatever you want to call that. Basically, we have provided an open invitation to anybody who's out there. If you make a physical product or offer a service that is um, creating physical products, we'll gladly give you a plug for free. Uh, send me a message if you want to be on our next podcast. But for this week, we have JSpec Engineering. Let me switch to the screen cap mode. There's Harrison. Um, JSpec Engineering specifically wanted me to uh, show off his knife. He has these really cool utility knives. Um, you can find them on jspecengineering.com or jspecengeng.com. I will have the link in the show notes. Um, and fun fact, he is in Johannesburg, which most of you guys probably don't know, but I actually spent seven years in Johannesburg when I was a kid. So um, looks like we have Ariel back. I'm going to pause it here again. Sorry about that, folks. We had some weird technical difficulties, but we seem to have them sorted now. Uh, we lost track of where we were, if we're being honest. So we're going to move into talking about um, something Harrison and I have both been really curious about, and that is how you guys do Cerakote. Uh, uh, yeah. Can I give a little background? Please. I, I tried Cerakote and decided that I hated it and moved to powder coating. Um I was unhappy with how long it took in general, uh, but also how long things like color changes took and the, the cure schedule. So I'm, I'm curious how you've made it work. Um, I would say I have all the same frustrations. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I like the color and I like that we can do it in-house. Um, for our product, I'm not sure powder coat would work uh, due to thickness. Um, but that might be incorrect. Uh, you know, I, I think there's probably a potentially a better option out there. Um, but again, yeah, it's worked. Uh, we really like the colors, um, like the abrasion and the UV stability seem pretty good. Um, so all in all, we've been decently happy with the result. The process is definitely not a highlight. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so I kind of priced it out. Like that said, I think people talk about it like it's a lot more expensive than anodize. Um, for us, it's not. Um, you know, depends how you price it out, but like we're not spraying a ton of it, um, which I'm not sure how pricing works for anodizing, you know? Like maybe for bigger parts, there is more of a price differential. I don't really know, right? For anodizing, it might be more like, racking time kind of thing. And we might, our cost might be high because of that. I don't really know. Um, yeah, I, but definitely. I can fill in a little bit on that side. Yeah, please. Uh, from anodizing versus Cerakote. Cause we've, we've compared the two and just to put rough numbers to things, if we were doing, you know, a batch of like, and now this comes back to um, for lean, you might anodizing might actually be worse because you're trying to minimize your batch size. Right. Um, but for the Cerakote side versus anodizing, if you have a big batch of, of aluminum anodized parts and that particular size kind of close to your parts, um, it can be, you know, up to like 
under a dollar per part for anodizing, whereas Cerakote is probably four or five dollars a part or more, depending on who you get to do it. Interesting. So if we're doing it in house. I'm talking about right, outsourcing right. it. Right. So our so, in, so internal like, costs are very comparable to anodize. Um, okay. And the lead time of anodize is a bit of, a, I wouldn't say it's quite a non-starter, um, but especially early days, like working out tolerancing and like when this tool wears, you get this interference and, and like imagining having sort of a two week turnaround time and then two weeks of production that you then have in-house and then finding that there's uh, an issue that comes out in assembly like that just feels like whatever savings we might have would be out the window real quick um now that we're doing more uh more products that are either a single piece or just like you know the tolerancing isn't as much of an issue um I think we might look at anodize. That said, we are looking at bringing it in-house just because, you know, we're a sucker for headaches, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Well, um, you might have less headaches doing it in-house than sending it out. <laughs> I think there is that. Like, I'm sure there will be a learning curve on the technical side. But the nice thing about, like, owning the process end-to-end -end is it's like, well we just messed up a bunch of parts. I guess let's go solve it so it doesn't happen again. <laughs> Whereas it seems like there's a lot of frustration with outside anodized vendors where it's like it happened once and now it happened again. And now I'll switch vendors and they're good for like six months and then they send me garbage. And so it just seems like maybe I'll, you know, maybe we'll do a follow-up podcast in like a year and I'll tell you exactly why that is and that we're doing exactly the same thing. I don't really know. Um, <laughs> Alexander, you, you had mentioned um, a different coding process that's like electrostatic or... Yeah, so I I can't really get too deep into this because right now I just don't know very much or don't understand it. Um, but I went to um, Fabtech, which is a trade show uh, earlier this week. And our goal there was basically to find a way to make powder coating easier and more reliable or to uh, find a way to eliminate it. And we found a company, uh, it's called Clear Cat, Clear Clad Clothing, Coat, man, they have a tongue twister, Clear Clad Coatings, um, that has a, a, a paint, basically, that the process is almost kind of halfway between anodization and uh, something like Cerakote or Powder Coat. You uh, have a vat of paint that is electrically charged. You put the, um, I'm not sure if it's the anode or the cathode on your part, but the other one goes on to the paint and you soak your, your parts in there for a amount of time that's determined by your coating thickness and the surface area of your parts. Um, very much like anodization, you watch until the uh, current lowers itself to the whatever number is the magic number for your, um, your parts. And then you take it out of there. I believe you let it drip for a second and then you cure it in an oven. Yes. And I have some samples of it. Oh, sorry. Go on. Interesting. No, I, I, yeah, I might need to uh, take a hard look at that. Um, an interesting thing I had heard is that, and it's just an interesting uh, way of dividing. Well, basically, if you apply coatings with a charge, um, then the charge differential like drives the coating in all the areas and corners and everything else. And so, as the coating builds up, the the 
color is now more, or the coating is more attracted to the thinner parts. So it's sort of self-regulating, whereas something like a, like a, you know, wet spray paint or something, you're heavily reliant on the skill of the operator to get a, get an even coating. And so, um, you know, that applies to, uh, yeah, anodize, it applies to powder coat to a large extent. Um, and then it also applies to, um, I forget what it's called, electrobath plating or whatever. They do it in car, the automotive industry all yeah. the time. Um, so I had looked at that early on. I'm curious as you dig into those samples, uh, you know, I, I'd love to hear how that goes. Um, I'm also kind of curious about the regula- the regulatory side of that. Um, because my understanding is that the question. second you have um, suspended, I looked at doing a waterfall paint booth, which is basically in like high volume spray applications. You, you have your paint and then you have water flowing down a surface and then it cascades down the bottom and your your air goes through that. And so that's how you're scrubbing the particles out of the air. And so you don't have like filters clogging. Um and so I was halfway through building one, like I had built a prototype and was going to build a, a, a bigger one. Um, and I talked to someone and they're like, I forget, you had to like hire someone who had a, a sewage management certification or something and have them on premise yeah. all the time. And I was like, all right, oh <laughs> I, like not doing that. So um, yeah, but I think that would be, I, I mean, that sounds perfect. That sounds like the best of both worlds, assuming the, yeah, the durability is good and the UV stability and the coating thickness, I guess, and the colors. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, it's, yeah, I, I mean, pulled up their, yeah. As you say, I just pulled up their website and it, it's, it, they're advertising uh, 12.5 microns to 45 microns. Cool. Depending on your, depending on the process you use. Yeah. So, I mean, right now, most like all of my information comes from talking to a salesman. I have not had the time to dig into it um, or look at other companies or whatever, but I don't know. I'm optimistic. Yeah, that, that sounds pretty interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think in general, uh, you know, talking to other people who are machining, machining products, um, I think coding is a headache for everyone. You know, doing it in house, I have my own set of headaches. And then sending it out there's you know the lack of control getting back bad stuff the lead times um yeah so i I, you know uh, i'm not sure there's a silver bullet here um i would guess that you know there's kind of like no free lunch and that's why things are the way they are to some extent but i mean it's 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 a it's a total hassle um and it is definitely not a highlight. Um, I am working on automating it in, you know, for, so if we can do it in automated process, that would be awesome. Um, like going back to the lean side of things, um, I, I've been frustrated by the lack of, of writing on paint and coatings specifically, like, like paint, like I really, I found a few mentions of lines where they work on like color change speed which is a real problem for me. Like tr- imagine going to like single piece flow, paint one yellow, one purple, whatever, like alternating colors without just having a few cups of paint with, you know, a few guns set up all the time, which is probably what we'll do. But um, yeah, 
shy, shy of doing that, like I, I just haven't found much at all. Yeah, it's kind of funny how you can find these little pockets of industry that just kind of completely got bypassed by lean. <laughs> Everyone gave up. <laughs> yeah. Like, I think you were talking about some issues with your um, sewing stuff and how yeah, it's just not as um, modernized as other portions of manufacturing are. I mean, I would say in general, it's perpetually surprising to me how much equipment is out there that is really poorly designed around lean principles um like changeover times uh like stopping itself when there's a defect stopping itself at the end of a cycle self unloading like all these things that are like the low hanging fruit of lean and often you look at the design and you're like this wouldn't have been harder necessarily or more expensive it's just like the lack of vertical integration i think often you know, it's like, well, people are buying it. We're not going to redesign it. So yep. I don't know. So speaking of coatings and everything, I was just looking through your website. Do you guys offer the ability to get custom color combinations or is it only pre-de- predetermined by what's on your website? Uh, I'm not going to answer that publicly. No. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> We, so we've done some like straight custom stuff. Those are pretty big, like minimum quantities. Uh, Gotcha. But if someone wants like, you know, from the colors we already offer, we assemble everything to order. So besides the sort of uh, hassle of creating a custom order, like the administrative side, which it's not a huge deal. Like if someone wants something very specific, you know, we, we try to make it happen. Like if you see two colors on there and you're just like, oh, you don't offer this combination. Can you do it? Probably yes. Um, but don't tell anyone. <laughs> uh, well, I was, I was just cu- I was just curious as as a business model, if you like rotate colors, like, you know, because I was looking on your on your Instagram. I saw one that would look like it was a, like a green and black or something. And I was trying to find that color combination on your website. They couldn't find it. Yeah. So, so so far we've launched a lot of color combos, um, and haven't really discontinued colors. Um, we are in the process of figuring out what that looks like in terms of like Kanban and just like the internal, uh, mechanisms to do that. Because as we launch new products and we offer them in like, you know, two sizes or maybe three sizes and then offer them in like eight colors or 10 colors, like the number of bins we have to keep, assuming we hold some buffer at our assembly area, which, you know, would be nice to move away from, but at this point is just difficult. Um, And then the other side of it is just uh, offering them all the time. I think there's a lot of sort of people being a little bit overwhelmed by the choices and never really pull the trigger because they're always like well uh, you know (laughs) i don't know which color i want so i I suspect it might actually be easier for us and maybe uh kind of more fun to engage with where it's like you see a color and you're just like oh man yeah it's only available this month i'm going to grab some so um i think for a number of reasons uh we'll probably start discontinuing some of the colors and you know maybe we bring them back in a year or something or seasonally i'm not sure what that looks like it's actually a really good point uh our flagship product right now the not so tactical carabiner 
I have to double check my math, but I think we have 140 different possible variants. Yeah. Um, and I, I think you're very correct where that can be overwhelming to a customer. Um, and I understand why. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I think I've sort of taken it as a challenge. Um, like something Toyota talks a lot about is like the number of variants they offer. If you consider like body type and then different trim levels and different panel colors and on and on a transmission engine, you know, the, the two cars shipping that are exactly identical is actually kind of infrequent. Um, which that might be an exaggeration. I don't really know. Uh, that's just what they wrote. But so I, I think I was like, oh man, like theoretically we should be able to offer every single color all the time and people can just pick exactly what they want. But I think, yeah, I, I'm not sure that that's always actually an enjoyable experience for a customer. Um, like there's uh, some interesting studies with, uh, you've probably seen them, but like a street vendor sets up with like three jam flavors and then they ask people about their satisfaction with their purchase. And then they also did it with like, you know, I forget, like 20 jam flavors and people were less satisfied with their purchase. Right. Because um, mm -hmm. you're like, oh, maybe that like the, the black current did look good. Maybe I should have gotten. That. <laughs> you know? So, mm -hmm. um, yeah. So so maybe maybe their unsatisfaction means they come back and get more, though. <laughs> They're unfulfilled. <laughs> I don't really know. Um, yeah. And, and then the other thing, which is an interesting like business reality is like, uh, you know, you want something to be able to talk about. Um, and so like, I see a lot of companies that are sort of like, Hey, we launched a new color and, um, it's just something to throw out there that isn't just like, Hey, can you give us some of your, you know, valuable time and attention? And you're like, why? Like, you're not, telling me about anything interesting <laughs> you know, it's like hey go to our website and you're like i don't want to um yeah so i don't know so yeah those are some some great points how how do you do marketing right now that is something that like i am just for the first time i think starting to finally get a little bit of a handle on um but what are how are you guys doing it uh yeah so we're doing a lot of uh, Instagram. Um, definitely interested in diversifying onto other platforms. Uh, I would say that that's been a big part of sort of getting getting the company out there. Um, and um, definitely personally been a, a, a kind of started to get pretty interested in like the psychology of all that content, um, like what's happening at every second in a video, um, with mixed success, I would say. Um, but you know, just sort of observing my own behavior when sort of looking through reels or something like that. Um, yeah, like, like really starting to think it's kind of fun, uh, starting to think about like, I don't know if you know, like the hook of, of, a of a video, mm -hmm. like, in second one, like if you put text on the screen, you know, what's the first word you read and what's the second word you read and what's the third word you read and like, does any of it spark curiosity? And it seems like curiosity is sort of a big driver um, 
for kind of sticking around. I think if you start to abuse it where you like pique someone's curiosity, but then don't show them anything interesting, you know, when you see a reel and it's like, wait for it. And then you do and nothing happens. And you're like, that was not satisfying at all. Um, so I think that's pretty interesting. So I've been thinking a lot about that um, and, and trying to walk that line of like, let someone know something interesting will happen in the first like one to two seconds and then actually deliver. Um, and I think failure to do either one of those things is sort of problematic, um, largely because of the, you know, I, well, I mean, it's easy to like blame it on the algorithm, but uh, like some really interesting interviews by Mr. Beast. And one of the things he said, which I thought was funny was, you know, anytime someone says the word algorithm, just replace it with the viewer. Because <clears throat> um, at the end of the day, like it is what people are deciding to do. That can have weird effects on the algorithm and how that surfaces things. Um, and then also what starts to be a little vexing is sort of like when these platforms decide they're moving in a particular direction. Like, you know, the, the emphasis being put on like reels is kind of weird because I'm not sure anyone actually, maybe I'm wrong about this, but anyway, um, so, so our marketing, I, yeah. So I have some stats here that are yeah, please. interesting. So we've been running paid ads for a while now. Um, the first fun fact is I, so we originally did our first ad test, put it out there. We got like a 0.5 return on spending. So for every dollar we spent, we got 50 cents back in sales. We used the exact same script and basically just changed the, what I would call the blocking, just like how the camera was moved and like what we showed when. And that ad since then has gone on to average about a two and a half uh, return on ad spend. So if we spend a dollar in ads, we get two and a half dollars back in website sales. Um, yeah, so that's, and that's the, super interesting. Yeah, the key there is we were able to see the analytics of when people dropped off over a, a fairly large number of impressions. I think it was hundreds of thousands. And pretty much very reliably, 0.6 seconds. If you didn't catch someone's attention by 0.6 seconds, they fell off. Um, and so that was kind of the magic number we had to work our ad around. It is sort of piquing someone's curiosity in the first 0.6 seconds. Yep. Which is basically human reaction time plus like two tenths of a second. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, what tools are you using to gather that? Like what platform is that on? So we are running ads on um, the meta platform. Okay. So Facebook, Instagram. The other fun thing we found out was over, gosh, hundreds of thousands of impressions. Um, 100%, 100% of our sales came from reels. We didn't get a single sale through a different, um, channel. Interesting. Yeah. So lately, I mean, I, I, I wonder about like how, I don't know what the analytics are like there. Um, and in terms of like, I, I think attribution in general is hard, but like breaking out, um, breaking out sort of like marketing materials into like lead generation, uh, like lead cultivation and conversion. I wonder, you know, I, I think it, yeah, I, I, it's hard to tell exactly what's happening, but like our conversion, um, I think 
is between, you know, some people see something and go buy some straps immediately. And I know some people buy after like two years, right? And so like, mm -hmm. it's very hard to then say, I mean, look, when, once, I mean, another thing, so it's funny you say the, the, the paid advertising, I, I, there's a lot of material out there sort of anti-paid advertising and it's like, it should all be organic. But at the end of the day, like if you can find a lever that's 2.5 return on investment, like that's a lot more scalable than uh, like relying on posting every day and, and using keywords in your description and post like at your key times for your demographic. And it's like, so we've done a lot of uh, messing around with paid ads largely for that. I mean, I, I'm interested to hear your, your um, like, it's interesting to hear the specific analytics because we mostly are advertising on Instagram through Instagram and the analytics there are pretty, pretty uh, minimal, let's say. And so it's been hard to get as like in the weeds. Like that's, yeah, that's super interesting. Um, so are you basically just like boosting your posts? Yeah. Okay. So you don't get targeted audiences. You can to some extent, but um, we haven't really messed with that. Uh, I think it's probably would benefit us greatly to start getting into. Uh, so, so maybe I can uh, pick your brain about that. <laughs> it's it's yeah. been on my uh, list. Are you using a Shopify website? Yeah. Okay. Um, you the way we have our ads targeted, at least the ones that works the best, is we are targeting people who look like the people who add stuff to the cart on our website. That oh, seems interesting. to be the magic, the magic audience for us. And you are doing that analysis yourself or there's tools that sort of look at all that? Uh, Meta does it for you. Bam. Uh, that's an interesting, yeah, an interesting feedback loop. Yeah, so I mean, uh, maybe I should be asking you how you're doing marketing. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I suspect you're selling you're selling more buckles than I'm selling carabiners. Anymore, so, uh, yeah, I mean it's been it's been good, and uh, whatever we're doing is working to an you know to some uh, extent. Um, I would say you know we trade off between being production limited and sales limited, and a lot of that has to do with like Eliyahu Goldrat and like um, critical chain or what's it called um, theory of constraints is sort of like if there's a moving bottleneck, there's probably one resource that's acting on each one of those. In that case, that I is me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So as like, if we become, it's sort of a vicious cycle that I've been trying to smooth out through just like uh, planning out my day a little better. But like when sales are really, when we're doing a lot of sales, I'm like, oh man, I need to like, you know, make sure we're, our production is good. And so my sales efforts drop. And this is classic, like, I feel like every small business suffers from this and you end up getting a self, like a big feedback loop where it's just like, boom. And you're like, oh no, I can't keep up. And so you fall off the like, you know, sales efforts and then you come out the back of it and you should have sent a bunch of emails like two weeks ago or three weeks ago. Um, so definitely trying to make a more consistent effort. And that's been helpful. Um, uh, hired a full-time guy uh, probably eight months back at this point, and he runs a lot of production. Um, and so that's also really helped. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah. So I, I guess our marketing has largely been, um, you know, a lot of just 
kind of organic trying to get uh the buckles into the hands of people who um you know like we've done a fair amount of influencer stuff um okay and like you know finding someone we've had uh pretty good luck with like working with people with like 10 to twenty five thousand followers um where they're sort of accessible and they're excited that you're reaching out and happy to work with you and then above that it's sort of like hard or people want to get paid which is totally understandable like there's money on those platforms and so why shouldn't they get a cut for sure but at this stage for us maybe at this stage we'd start like i I have actually started uh you know figuring out what that might look like but um early on i'm like you know i'm not gonna pay you whatever 10 grand for like a post and a reel (laughs) like i don't yeah maybe it would have been worth it i have no idea but it's just sort of a a lot of money um and really hard to say what the return would be um and then also publications have been really big uh i think in terms of credibility and then just like they already have a big audience and so uh, we've tried to do a lot of work with different publications um and that's been really helpful what what does that look like? I think D- Design the Everything's only been in one publication. Uh, during our Not for Climbing Carabiner Kickstarter, we got in the Core 77 blog. Oh, and cool. that day, I think we immediately saw like a $10,000 jump or something just crazy <laughs> yeah, overnight. That's, um, that sounds so about right. How do I do that again? Um, yeah, I think like... You know, every all of us have a job to do, right? And all of us have like a boss. If you're self-employed, that boss is your customer. But um, so my feeling is that a reporter also has a job and also has pressures. And so like it is their job to generate a story that is interesting. And if you figure out a, a like... I like to work with um, a reporter. Like if I'm interested in a publication, I'm not just like reaching out to that publication. I'm finding a reporter who's written a story on something like what I'm doing or who's interested in, who's, who's written articles that tell a story that is similar to a thing I think I can tell an interesting story about. And like, if you're pitching something that is boring they're not like that doesn't actually help them do their job, right? If they actually fall for it, I don't know what that means, but like, let's say you shoot them an email. I see a lot of people doing this, right? Someone it's like, Hey, you're a reporter for this. You know, can you write about our product and put it in your publication? Think about what that would look like for them. Like they, let's say for some reason they say, yes, they write a thing about your whatever, even if it's a cool product, it would literally just look like a, like a sales. Like, what is that? Is that an yeah. advertisement? Is it like, what's interesting? Are you solving a problem in an interesting way? Are you looking at a, at a, at a problem in a new way? Like, and then can you find a, a, a reporter who, I don't know, like who's writing an article, uh, you know, about some small company here that did an interesting widget and is whatever. And then you're like, okay, I can, I can, and then lastly, like they are busy and have, uh, so like, I also see people saying like, can you write a story about me as if like, 
this person is really good at looking at something and going like, here's the story. And the fact is they might be good at that. Like they probably are good at it, but it's going to be way easier for them if you're like, hey, I think what if you told this story about what we're like, not what if you told this story, but like we're doing this thing and you you write an email to them that is kind of like, this is uh, like they can immediately in reading it, hear what story they're going to write. If you have good, you know, just like making their job easy, I think is a big part of it. Um, you know, I, I don't feel like an authority on this by any means. Like we've done okay with publications, I think. Um, I mean, we've been super excited about every article that comes out. Um, and we've been in a good, good number of publications at, at this point. Um, the other thing is like cold outreach is hard, I find. Um, and so like, you know, like social, <laughs> whatever, um, social networks, um, have a network um no so what is like if you find uh someone who you think would maybe write a story or something like that you can figure out who in their network they might be looking at as like a trendsetter in the space and you can set them up with free product you can like if you're going direct through the front door sometimes it's harder i find than like and the other thing is like you know um, another little Mr. Beast tidbit is like, it's easier to make this is according to him, not according to me, uh, easier to make one video that gets a million views than like 10 videos that get a hundred thousand views. Um, because if you think about like the, just like base level noise that exists in the world, if you stand out way above that, then you stand out. If you're just like in the noise, it's just like, so there's a ton of inbound on all for all those people. And so I don't know, like when we, when I was running a startup, um, we like, if we posted a, a job opening, we'd get a ton of resumes. And now suddenly you're like, Oh God, on top of everything else I have to do now, I'm supposed to read all these resumes. So you're sort of looking for like any way to differentiate. So like, the people who didn't write a cover letter, it's like, all right, they're out. Anyone who then followed up and was like, hey, I sent this in like three days ago or five days ago, I'm super interested in the job. Then like, even if it's just out of like, oh man, I should really get back to them. You're going to like pop open their resume and at least give it a look. So like, I think that all that stuff is sort of worth bearing in mind. So like, if you look at a reporter and you see they have a particular aesthetic, like you can shoot photos in that aesthetic and try to get them in front of them or if, include them in the email. And then like, you're, you're speaking their language sort of, instead of like, I don't know. So I think there's just some like legwork to sort of understand like what their job is, where they're coming from and try to make their life easy. And like at the end of the day, if they have no stories for that week or no stories at the end of the month, like they're going to be like their boss is annoyed. So they're going to write something, you know? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know if any of that's helpful, but that, that's what I find it, to be useful. It is. Um, the one question, when you say reporter, I mean, are you like, what kind of publications are you talking to? Um, I mean, you can just, yeah. So like we've been in, I think outside magazine is probably the biggest one that was outside online. Um, and then bikepacking.com has done a few pieces. The Radivist has done a few pieces. 
um, I think Overland X. Uh, it's not Overland Expo. It's uh, there's a, a, a few that I'm forgetting. The um, Overland Portal, maybe, or anyway, um, a few sort of overlanding publications, um, and then like Cariology just did a more of like a mention that we launched a product, but that was like through some some legwork on our end. Um, and I'm trying to think, I feel like there's been others. I have a list somewhere, but yeah. So like, you know, it's not like every top art, uh, magazine has, you know, popular mechanics like that. That's on my list. Um, they haven't done anything and I have reached out with no success so far, but like, you know, I kind of just started on it. And so it's sort of about figuring out like what is something they're likely to write about. And the fact is like, I might just not be interesting enough for that magazine at this point for whatever reasons, right? Like, and then there has, like, there should be like a timing event also would be another thing <clears throat> similar to like thinking about someone actually pulling the trigger and buying your product. Like, is there any reason that they should write an article today or this week, hmm. or are you just like, hey, write an article about me? And they're like, yeah, maybe we will. And then in three years, maybe they're like, yeah, here, I'm going to write. But if you're like, hey, we're launching a product at the end of Q4 or at the end of Q3, um, you know, do you guys do like a holiday guide or something, or like a gift guide? Would you want to put this in? Like, you're actually helping them, assuming you're not just like reaching out to someone who sells like, you know, plush toys and you're selling like a machined aluminum object. And they're like, what the? Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> So, yeah. So, like, I think, yeah, I think it has to, like, you, you need to bring value to the table. Like, their customer needs to be genuinely interested in the article. So, like, if they stick, like, it's not actually success to be in popular mechanics if everyone who crosses the article is just like, this is dumb, right? Like, that wouldn't help you. It wouldn't help the reporter. It'd be much better if you can come up with, like, a story about what you're doing, like, I mean, for me, like, like if we did get straps that went, you know, landed on the moon, I'd probably reach out to a few publications so like, hey, yeah. we did this. Would you want to write about it? And I bet they would say yes at a much higher conversion rate than uh, than with the, my current, uh, you know, story offerings, let's say. Right. Like if I put solar panels on the roof of our building, which is something I'd be interested in doing. Like there's probably an article there about like, you know, the future manufacturing as it relates to like environmental whatever impact, right? Like there's a publication or two that would be like, yeah, here's an example of people actually doing things. So like, is that going to be on bikepacking.com? Hmm, maybe. Is that going to be like, you just have to find, I don't know. And then are you getting publicity in front of people who are going to convert to like in front of your target audience or are going to convert to paying customers? Hard to say, like ideally, yes, maybe no. So, yeah. yeah. So, you know, you're talking about, you know, you're one doing a whole bunch of production all the time Two, you have an employee three, you're doing all this marketing, both on social media, but also reaching out. Like you've got a lot of stuff going on. Um, how how are you keeping yourself organized and on task and like prioritizing what to do first? Um, yeah, ongoing challenge. Um, not well, I would say. 
okay. <laughs> I mean, well enough, well, like stuff is okay. happening, but, but yeah, I mean, it's hard. Uh, like I have different systems that I try to use and they all succeed and fail at different times. And, uh, yeah, I mean, one matrix that I think is interesting is like, um, uh, interesting. No, what is it? Urgent and important. So there's things that are urgent and important. Those get done. There's things that are urgent and not important. Sometimes those get done. There's urgent and not important. And then there's, I'm oh, sorry, there's not urgent and important. And so those are the ones, those are the sleepers, you know? Yeah. And so like, I do try to sort of think about that. Um, I've been messing around with like a whip board of like only, only working on ideally one thing. I don't know who's coming up with this ideally concept, but like theoretically anything you invest time in that is not giving you any return on that investment is, is a problem and it's inefficient. So like if I'm doing 10 projects at a time and wrapping up all 10 takes me six months, but uh, in, instead I could have worked at one, like worked on one at a time. Often in terms of ROI, that's better. In terms of the realities of running a business, it's a little perplexing to me how one is meant to do that. Uh, so that's still something I'm kind of working on. But in general, like I think it's easy to keep taking on tasks and hard to sort of be like, yeah, that's really important and is going to be really big for the business. But I think I'm going to have to do it in like three months. Like I find that kind of hard to do, but I'm... Uh, you know, okay. I don't know. Trying to get better at it for sure. Um, I think a lot of that, like I think about that a lot in regards to product uh, design, like it's really easy and fun that first, like, you know, the first 90% of a project before you hit any speed, what's that like the first 90% and then the other 10% takes the other 90% of the time. Yeah. <laughs> like I've, like it's a, you're like oh this is such an easy win you know you jump in CAD do a bunch of design or like sketch it on paper and you're like this is great and then you sort of get to that phase where it's just like you need to iterate like 50 times or 100 you know revisions to get it to a level where you're happy with it um so I'm like trying a lot harder to not start those but just to capture them in a like I have a list I, I get these like um whiteboard magnets like magnetic whiteboard face thing so the side of the cnc is just like covered in these magnets mm. with different scribblings on them one list i have is like uh, a list of products we want to release and then i can go over and sort of prioritize them and i just try to not start too many try being the the you know yeah uh, <laughs> yeah so i think one of the one of the biggest things that I've learned about myself since starting a business is I am much worse at knowing what I need to do than I thought I was. Mm. Uh, you know, back when I had a job, I thought I was really good at just, you know, figuring the thing to work on and working that. And kind of what I've come to realize lately, and I, I've been reading about this and kind of doing some research, is I'm probably um, some amount of ADHD. And I think a lot of us in the community are probably a little bit, but I think... Like, yeah, I think if I hadn't been good at school, I would have been diagnosed with ADHD mm. um, and just kind of learning how to 
deal with that as a yeah. business owner. Like, um, it's, I don't know, it's challenging. The, one of the things I, I have learned recently is like, when, if there's something I don't want to focus on at the moment, if I just try to force myself to focus on it, I, I won't. I'll just sit there and, you know, kind of bang my head against the wall and not get very far. And like, just learning to move on to something that I do want to do is, um, actually help my productivity a lot. The downside, yeah. it's very easy to just never get to something. Um, for example, the zometry part that I made like six months ago, this is their test part. And I never sent in the inspection report and like, it's just, it's never come up and it's something I need to do. Um, but I've never been able to get myself to, to get around to it. So I'm trying to figure out the balance between like work efficiently on the things that are interesting, but also, um, learn to just get stuff done when it needs done. Yeah, I, I would I would say I agree with everything you just said uh, or resonate with. Um, it, yeah, I, I mean, I, I would say I have similar uh, challenges. I would say like two things that have been useful to me. One, like in high school, I decided to stop procrastinating by exactly what you're saying. Like, don't try to do the thing and do something you like instead of not doing the thing you're meant to do and, and wasting your time just like commit to not doing the thing you're meant to do and like go for a bike ride or like do a project in the shop that you're excited about. And I think like, it's sort of annoying not being able to just be like, all right, I need to get this thing done and I'm just going to sit and work on it. Like that is uh, maybe perhaps a character flaw in myself, but um, I think like, I don't know, I've gotten this far and yeah, maybe I dropped the ball here and there on like, is the accounting side of the business the thing I'm most passionate about? Perhaps not. Can you hire a bookkeeper? Yeah. <laughs> um, and um, yeah. And then the other thing that I think is helpful is just like reframing things in a way that is exciting. Like I find that making a list of things I like have to do is like, pretty depressing and I'm like wow now I don't want to do any of these things instead of like making a list of the projects that I would like really be excited about getting done I don't know that that's sort of helpful um for me but you know also one, one yeah. of the other things um probably one of the more life-changing things that I have come across in the last couple months is actually from your podcast and on one of your podcasts, you pointed out, I think you called it like the ninth lean waste, which is confusion. Um, I have noticed that like that confusion of not knowing what I need to do next is the number one thing that kills my productivity. Interesting. Uh, and so I've, I've embraced that, that ninth lean waste. I love it. Um, I sort of forgot about that. That's awesome. Um, yeah. Have you found good ways of like, eliminating the confusion of knowing what to do next or um or just being aware of it you're like all right i gotta pick something quickly instead of like a little bit of both i wish i had a larger system in place that was like a, a better to-do list like i have to-do lists but i have a hard time like those actually being uh, being consistent with but yeah. just like if we reach up here you know one of the things i had a hard time uh dealing with is like okay what tools do i need to put in the machine 
to make my parts. And so, well, I did the you know tool tag system that everybody has, uh, where now I have a, a rack on the machine that has the tools that are in there. And now I store my uh, pre-set up tools in a process bin that has you know all the tools, um, oh, cool. some setup stock, the fixtures if they fit, and uh, did I say all the tools? And a setup sheet. Uh, that's awesome. And that's been hugely helpful when it comes to like changing over between jobs. Yeah. So something I, I was talking to a buddy of mine who uh, actually has a diagnosis for ADHD um, and not saying other people don't have ADHD, but just, I feel like I've talked to so many people who are like, yeah, I identify with a lot of these things, but I don't have a diagnosis. Uh, anyway, I have never been diagnosed. <laughs> yeah, you same. I don't know what level I have it at. It may just be a, something I identify with and it's not actually there, but yeah, hard to say. Um, uh, he was talking about optimizing tasks to reduce the amount of, um, what's the word for it? Like, like how hard it is to start the task, which I thought was kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes like that clarity you were just talking about, like we, uh, a while ago at this point, but went from sort of having like all of our soft jaws somewhere on a shelf and then, like the gripper fingers were also somewhere on a shelf and like all the tool, like the set, you know, and now just having it all in one place, which sounds like it's not a major change because they were right next to each other, but it's just so clear exactly what the next step is. We have, we even have like how we do the changeover written out. And so it's kind of like, here's step one, here's step two. And somehow the, the lack of needing to decide what your entry point is and should I set this part up? Like, it just makes it not only faster, but I would say maybe more importantly, like something you don't have to think about or like fewer places to sort of get caught up in like indecision and distraction um, to some extent. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah, the, 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 I think taking tasks and like, I had never sort of thought about optimizing for like ease of starting, <laughs> but I thought that was a fun concept. Yeah, I think I heard something a while back where someone said, you know, in a day you can only make 10 good decisions. And so if you're if you're constantly doing stuff that you have to make a decision on, then it makes it really hard to get anything done because you know, you start wrestling with all the decisions you're making and yeah. it starts slowing you down. And so if you can simplify everything to a point where you make very few decisions and everything's just clear, everything just flows so much smoother. Yeah. I think, I think like there's sort of a tendency to optimize for um, like a task. So like, I think about like, you know, it's always tempting when you're machining a part to get the smallest stock that you can fit your part into, but there's huge benefits to like not introducing a new stock size into your shop. And there's definitely like, do you waste aluminum? Do you waste time? Do you waste like, confusion of how many parts you keep in the shop and anyway like i i think it's easy to focus on small like very local optimum often with that of like instead of just focusing on like the big picture i mean including like when you're programming a part to be machined it's so easy to get dragged into the like oh i bet i could that's a long toolpath like that's two and a half minutes i bet that i can get that down let me like increase the step over let me, oh, maybe I should change what tool I'm doing that with. 
and now you've spent like 15 or 20 minutes and you're making three parts and you shave a minute off. So you just shave, you like save three minutes or with 30 minutes. And it's just so easy to get pulled into like a million of those examples. Um, and really hard to just like, yeah, we standardized it. We don't have to decide how we're doing it. We have a standard method. It is, um, yeah, I, I think of the, the, the term, um, policies ensure uh, prevent failure and ensure mediocrity. Um, and I feel like the mediocrity part when it comes to like machining is sort of like your, your, uh, your cycle time, right? It's like, eh, I could do that faster, <laughs> but it's like, you don't want a failure. Then you like go crash your machine and break your roughing mill. And you're like, now nah, I set up a new roughing mill and all that. So, um, it's kind of funny. I've got one last uh, big question here before we start wrapping up. Yeah. How do you guys um, manage maybe the wrong word? How do you guys conduct your quality control? Uh, what, like what processes and systems do you have in place to make sure that everything that ships isn't just functional, but also looks good? Yeah. So we have, um, we have explicit points in the process that things get QC'd. Um, it's definitely an ongoing process. We just had a QC issue, um, that we should have caught earlier. Um, it was fixable, but, uh, yeah. So we were just talking about this. Basically when everything comes out of the mill, we have, we do, um, like a 10% inspection, which obviously hundred percent inspection is the goal through like, uh, like subsequent inspection with your fixtures. Um, and so that's possible, but yeah, right now we're doing 10% inspection out of the mill. We inspect certain critical features, um, getting back to the like explicit systems instead of sort of like having to decide what to inspect. That's something we, um, it's funny, we had it and then we switched Kanbans and it used to be on the back of the Kanban would be what features to QC. It's no longer there. So we have to add that back. And we're also going to add an, uh, um, right now, this isn't going to be a major change, but right now, basically parts come out of the mill and the next process, like on all of our diagrams, like written out process by process, the next process is we eliminated tumbling. So now the next process is degreasing. And it's just sort of this thing that we do of like, when you're moving parts from the mill to the degreaser, we do a 10% inspection, but really, so the next what we're going to change is have an explicit place. Like they don't go to degrease, they go to QC, right? Like mm -hmm. that is the next stop on their journey and they don't skip that stop. So we've had some stuff where we forget on the way to degrease because whatever we forget. So like having a place where they go, a sheet that shows you which features to measure in what order. Um, so that, and then having all the tools laid out to, to do those inspections. Um, so like right now we it, like check the, the bore where the pin goes. Um, and that's all done by feel, which is suboptimal for sure. And like go, no go pin gauges exist for a reason. Um, so like, you know, definitely have room to improve. Um, we have, uh, magnification lamps at a lot of stations, um, to, so like if there's an issue, like you can feel a lot of problems and you get a feel for like what's running well, what's not running well. Um, we haven't, we've gotten like our, our process has gotten a lot better where we've used it less, but like we used to get burrs sometimes or like our quarter round, um, 
mills would like cut too deep or whatever. And so uh, we used to have more issues with like part deflection. We actually added a regulator to our pneumatic vise for OP2 so we can have a much lighter clamping pressure for OP2 because it was bowing the part slightly and then the quarter round would come through and it was no good, right? Like when you take off the hat in OP2, you lose rigidity as the hat gets removed. And so Yes, the facing operation happened, but then you remove more material over here. So that part bows up. So then the quarter round comes across and it's fine on either end, but in the middle, it's like digging in. So uh, that the magnification lamp was, was nice for sort of digging into some of that. Um, we log all of our QC rejects. So we have data and the way we do it, that sounds fancier than it is. We have bins at our QC station and we <laughs> write different things on the front of the bins. And then we have um, Google Forms with a scanner. So you can get a barcode scanner and, uh, and a barcode is just a font. And so you can include like an enter at the end of each line. And so e over each bin, you can write one, two, three, four in barcode. And then when you have a reject, you can open a new form with a QR code scan. And then you can say, like in our, in our paint department, we have different classifications of rejects. So you just move across it. So you say like, how many rejects do you have due to specs? And you just scan like two or three or whatever. How many rejects do you have that are underpainted, overpainted? And then we have machining rejects, which shouldn't have made it that far, but sometimes do. And basically what happens is, um, <laughs> so it's funny, the forms are cool, but don't wait till you set up forms. Just set up a bin because when you look in the bin, as long as you empty them all simultaneously, you see which areas you need to work on. So that's honestly been the most impactful side of it. Yeah, it's cool that we have all this data theoretically. Um, and I do look at it. The most useful part is if we find rejects, we can go look at what, what paint batches we've done when and sort of get a sense. Um, it gives us some window into like supply chain traceability, but it's not good enough. Um, like there's still room for improvement there. But yeah, so we do a check out of machining. Um, then we degrease, we go into uh, paint. We do 100% inspection out of paint under magnification. Um, and so there, we used to have more machining rejects. We've refined our machining processes, so we really don't get many machining rejects there. And then at our assembly station, we also have bins for different QC issues. Um, and uh, yeah, we pick some stuff up there, but then we really try to like break out categories so that you can pursue the biggest culprits um right so like if we're getting there's a step which i'd never really understood like it took me a long time this idea of like rationalize your production you're like what does that mean it's like a big lean concept um, and basically what it means is something like if you have a five percent reject rate due to um specs coming out of paint if you, there's a temptation to make paint really fast, right? It's like I'm painting, I'm making all this stuff. Then you put it in the oven. What I realized at some point is like, we're doing that hundred percent inspection anyway. What if I just spray paint and then inspect them while it's still wet? So if there's an issue on any of them, I can pull the part and immediately strip it. And so we don't actually lose that part. Right. And so the same amount of work goes in, it feels slower and more frustrating because you're not just like flying through an individual task, which I feel like gives you the illusion of speed. Um, 
And so we were able to get our re uh, reduce our um, reject rate pretty drastically. But also, I think an important piece with QC is thinking about it as a feedback loop. There is an aspect of like, you don't want your customer to get a crappy product, but there's also an equally important aspect, which is catching a problem while the um, circumstances that led to it still persist, right? So like if you machine something a month ago and then you inspect it and you find a, an issue, like there's a huge burr and then you go to your machine and you're like, I don't remember what end mill we were using. Like, did we change it since? I have no idea. So you haven't learned anything from making that scrap and you're as likely to make it again. So like that's been really helpful for us to try to shorten those QC loops to make sure things get QC'd right after they got made in an effort to like, yeah, we're gonna not ship it to the customer, but also we can be like, hey, we just got like a ton of specs, what was different? We used to have a pretty, like, we used to have a high reject rate um, uh, in paint due to specs in the paint and uh, this sounds so obvious in retrospect, but like now I blow myself down head to toe before I start painting, right? Because like you're standing right upwind from the parts. So um, yeah, I think QC is like super helpful as long as you keep those uh, QC loops, like the feedback loops super tight. How do you deal with uh, subjective points? So like you're talking about specs, how do you deal with like, this is an acceptable amount of specs versus this is a unacceptable amount of specs. Um, we definitely err on the side. Like I show people, we, we sometimes like when people come through the shop, we'll uh, sometimes give them seconds or like sell them seconds. Um, and sometimes when I point out the seconds, they're like, what? That's like we inspect on our magnification. Um, obviously there's still some subjectiveness involved, but like we have always erred on the side of like, don't ship it instead. Let's figure, like, let's just eliminate that as an issue. Um, and, like not to sound over whatever, like, yes, we ship some stuff the way it's, you're like, that's not perfect, but it's like, once the thing is assembled, you can't even see that face. So like, that's fine. But Again, like definitely sort of err on the side of like, let's just not ship it. Now we are in a, maybe not a unique situation, but like our individual components are not very expensive for us, right? So like, you know, if you scrap one of those little cams and yeah, maybe you could have shipped it. That's not a huge deal. Um, like the dollar figure of one part is not crazy high. Uh, I think that's a very dangerous attitude to take if you're not also serious about chasing down the problems. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. like, you're just like, yeah, we just don't care about scrap. That's not great. But yeah, I think like um, the, the, the what made me realize that was um, I took some photos of a buckle really close up very early days, like right after we started and my brother saw them and was like, those kind of like, what's going on with the edge of the buckle there? And I forget what, I forget what it was, if it was machining issue or paint issue, but it occurred to me that like, I want, um, like social media is a big part of this for us. And I want people to take really close up photos and I want everyone to be uh, kind of like blown away by the level of detail and um quality i guess 
And so if people need to like zoom way out to make it look good, like I'd rather someone post shots under like a macro lens and scrap some more parts. Um, and I think it's a good, like all of these problems are fixable. They just take a lot of work to fix, right? Like it's a, the concept of uh, uh, deterministic systems, right? Like there's nothing that's like random action in our shop. Like high on our list is building a wall um, to pre-filter the air into our paint area. Cause like we still get specs and like there's air, there's, there's dust floating around. We're a shop, you know, <laughs> like we can fix this. Um, and yeah. Uh, so I, I would say like, yeah, I always want like a, a really close up photo to look excellent. And I'd rather scrap some stuff as long as we're sort of logging it and going like, okay, like we fixed this issue. What's next? Like what's the next biggest culprit that's leading to defects? Yeah, I guess what I'm trying to get at here is like when it was just me shipping everything, like it wasn't really an issue if um, mm, yeah, like where that standard was set. But, you know, as soon as Scott got in here and started shipping things, um, we didn't always have the same standards and expectations. Um, and yeah. it was kind of <clears throat> difficult to set those. And I, we had to actually, you know, write out a list. Um, like, for example, one of our rules was if you can tell two carabiners apart, um, then the one that's worse, obviously, is scrap. Like, if you can tell, like, if you can notice a difference, then we can't ship that one. Um, or if you see any evidence that the part was machined, like i.e. a tool mark, chatter mark, et cetera, like that is something we won't ship, which I, I guess to me was obvious, but like Scott needed to see a picture of like, well, this is what chatter looks like in a, um, right. you know, on a carabiner, don't ship this. And like we, or um, when you're coding with some of the colors that are less saturated, you can sometimes see color differences around the corners. Yeah. And, you know, we had to define, you know, this is a bad one. Don't ship this versus this is a good one. This is. Yeah. I, I see where you're asking. And I definitely um, didn't answer that. So we don't have um, it's, it's on the list for sure of like making sort of a pamphlet for each thing of like examples with photos. Like it's something um, I've done before for other products like previous companies uh, and that was working with a third-party vendor. So I think it's easy to get lazy when it's in-house, right? It's like every QC thing we would document and then add it to the book of like, here's an issue. Please don't ship this again, <laughs> you know? Um, what we did internally was, I mean, I think everyone, that's not true. One of the people, uh, so we have like two part-time people. Um, one of the people was so good that it was, I mean, like some of the stuff he found, it was very impressive, uh, just the level of, so we, what I always did was just like, you inspect it. We all know what a very good one looks like. And then any questions you have, set them aside. We did it a little le less efficiently, I would say, without having documentation by having someone who knew what they were doing sort of do an inspection afterward and just see if there's much difference. And then over time, like it doesn't take too long to sort of come to a consensus. I don't think that method is a good method. <laughs> like I think what you're doing is, um, is much better.
like written documentation photos you know it is still very much a work on a work in progress and we only have it for one product right now yeah Um, but the general rules of like if you can tell two of the products apart something is wrong or yeah like you can see any machining marks those have been the most helpful really yeah yeah i I like there's a big increase in quality with your new stuff i'm afraid to ask can you see any machining marks um, not on the powder coated one, although I was, I, I was looking at your, uh, your uncoated titanium ones and this one's probably unfair because of the slotting, but I did notice oh, a little bit of yeah. chatter in, in like the tight radius areas that in a couple of spots. And we can't tumble that out. No, you mm. can't tumble that out. And, and that's, that's something that like, when I look at it, I completely understand why it's there and, and. Honestly, a person who wasn't paying attention or didn't know what they were looking at probably wouldn't think anything of it. But I was curious because I have your original one, and I wanted to com- I wanted to go over this with a fine tooth comb to uh, to see what I what I could see. And I'm it's there's only like a couple spots that where it's just like the faintest bits of chatter. But I mean, honestly, you would never know. Like like your average person looking at this would never be able to tell there was anything wrong anywhere yeah i, oh, I do oh, like oh, okay I... <laughs> sorry <laughs> there there was one thing that did stand out that someone should should catch and that is where your screw went through the slot it pushed the material down that's the only spot that i see on here um I think, that i think we're contending with uh yeah. with a compressor that's running Oh, oh, that's why he's not responding. Okay, yeah. okay. Sorry, I was so in the zone, I completely missed that. It's but, done now. Done that. Yeah, there was a there was a screw that was too tight, and it uh it it uh left a little sliver of titanium kind of squished mm. out. Yeah, I should watch for that more. That, um, that's the that's the only thing I see that other than the little bit of chatter at the very ends of the slots. But then, I, like. I wonder about this sometimes. Um, I think to all of us here, you know, I, I don't know exactly how this works, but like go pick up a, a a carabiner in the store, right? And you look at that and you're like, wow, this is like, I would not ship this, but yet like this is the, not that it's like, there's nothing wrong with it. And that's the funny thing. So I, I, I wonder about this sometimes. It's like as a machinist who wants all the blend marks, like from tool to tool to be perfect. It's like, are you giving the customer what they want by doing that? Or are you artificially driving the cost up? Are you artificially driving like your development time to new products? I mean, I, I feel like it's a bit of a running joke for me, like releasing new products. I'm always saying I will and then it's forever because there's so many little things like then you get rid of this little bit of chatter like I had for finally eliminated it but I noticed that like going around the outside of the buckle we were drilling our holes before doing our finishing pass and there was almost this like shadow you could see of I I Mm. guess the cutting pressures just shifted slightly or something and so we started you know we we started finishing the perimeter before drilling our holes and like that's a really simple change to make, but by the time you get it all where exactly where you want it to be, like it's easy to burn, you know, an hour of fiddling 
with your uh, machining process and outputting the code and ver you know validating it and watching it and being like, okay, that cuts a little too heavy or I think I can go a little faster here. So um, I do wonder about the level of perfectionism and whether that's actually um, what the, the market wants, I guess. But I also feel like it's easier later to slide into lower. I don't know if I would even say lower quality because or maybe quality is the wrong word. Maybe we're talking about value, right? Like I'm not sure that it's less value. It might actually be more value um, to the customer. Um, like, uh, you know, for me, like we have bins of, of rejected parts that are perfect buckles from a function perspective. And especially once you drag them through the mud on three trips, like how much, yeah. what is, what's the problem with a little speck in the paint? I don't know. So, my theory on, um, I guess, quality level is maybe the what my theory is on here. But when I decide to make a product, you go, I go, okay, I'm going to make a carabiner. And then I do market research and I figure out how much I want that carabiner to cost. And then I yeah. design the carabiner backwards from there. And I, you know, if I was making 99 cent carabiners, like... With a Tormach, I am not staying in business. I don't know how they make those 99 cent carabiners, but it's not with this. So I need to sell a carabiner that's more. Yeah. And I know that my audience responds best to things that are in the 25 to $60 range. And so I designed a carabiner that I could make and sell profitably um, and, would meet and would meet people's expectations inside that price range. Yeah. It and I think you've got to understand what your customer wants, and that dictates to some of those decisions. Like, because because if you want to sell someone a buckle or a carabiner, um, like you said, you can go down to the store and probably find either one of those items at a significantly cheaper price. So what you're selling to your customer is 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 kind of determining what level of quality. If you you know if you if you're trying to sell something that's a commodity item. You have to have something that grabs people's attention. And even if it's only the first time they open it and then it goes on a bike or it goes on a keychain, and then it gets destroyed over time, that first impression when they open it up, you know, that Apple effect of like, Oh man, this is so pretty. Like, and they, and they admire the craftsmanship and they got it all. And they're looking over all the different angles and everything. That's the moment where, um, where it matters and almost after that once it's in use daily use who cares at that right. point but there's there's that there's that first impression especially if it's a new customer you know you never know what that customer who picks up your product and looks it over if they see a, a blimp you know you don't know their personality they could be the kind that they look at that and they go oh you know i i really like this guy i really like his work and you know, whatnot, but he, he messed this up and, you know, now I think less of him for it, for whatever reason, yeah. or, um, you know, on the flip side, they look over it and they go, Oh my goodness. You know, I, I hear them and I see them and I follow them. And like, this is just absolutely immaculate. And I want to tell everyone about it. And, mm -hmm. and that's the kind of stuff that I think can draw people in that. And I think that's the reason why you put the time into the quality. It's not, it's not because the product needs it. It's because it's part of the brand that you're building. 
Yeah, I mean, that's definitely why we veered on the side of like excessive, like, you know, inspecting under magnification is just like, we do want that. Um, another example of this that I don't really have, a, I don't know exactly where I land on is the unboxing experience. And like, mm. you can put a lot of time and the customer's money, whether they like it or not, like that's where it's coming from, into the unboxing experience. and there's sort of like adverse incentives and also just weird in terms of the total product life cycle It's like you open it, you experience the packaging for like 20 seconds. If it's like really, really nice, you know, whatever, maybe it's a minute. If it's really nice. Maybe you keep that thing. Do you like that you wanted to keep it? Cause it seemed weird to throw it in the trash or is it just like clutter that then you own like right now? Um, anyone who's ordered straps knows that the, uh, dollars you you your hard-earned dollars you uh pay us for buckles is not going to the packaging <laughs> you know and i think we're problematically on the other end of that spectrum of like it just doesn't match the premium brand and the premium you know i but at the same time it's like you're buying a premium buckle yeah <laughs> so uh putting it in like really you know we could like you know carve out some foam and like put it in a little metal tin and you'd get it and be like wow and maybe you'd post a photo on instagram and so maybe you attribute some of that spend to your marketing spend which is fair um but i don't yeah i don't know it's like it's wasteful it is but there's also good reasons to do it so i don't i don't really <laughs> and it's not the yeah, I, I, I've, I've been thinking about it a lot and don't really know where I fall on that. And I don't know if there's a right or well, wrong, but. Well, I, I think I think if you can, like, ideal packaging needs to be cheap, but simple and elegant. And I think AJ's done a really good job with that personally, um, with how he does his packaging. Um, I haven't seen your packaging too much, so I don't know for sure. Um, but another one that I kind of think of is like um, you wouldn't say that fidget things. Huh? <laughs> you you wouldn't say that about our package. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So fidget things. You know, he'll he'll do the chill pill and he does yeah. them in like a little medicine bottle. So I mean, you can do clever things um, that are not necessarily super expensive or super elaborate, but that still speak to your brand. Um, so I I do think there needs to be a little more effort than just say shoving your shoving your item in a plastic bag and then and then shipping it in whatever packaging box you have but at the same time you might not need to go to the level of like i have a, a dye injected molded thing that's like this crazy totally. and, and and so like there, there is that balancing act and i think simple yet elegant is kind of the thing to strive for um and and it's yeah. in smaller products that aren't like hundreds or thousands of dollars Agreed. I... We fall into the camp of uh, plastic bags, so we're we're currently working on fixing that. <laughs> um, yeah. I have been on both sides of the spectrum. Uh, some of our early products we shipped in a custom CNC routed wooden, like walnut magnetic wow. closing boxes, um, and they were very nice. They were expensive. We were selling more expensive things, um, and I have also shipped plenty of things in you know brown paper in a, a bubble mailer and where we've settled now is we have some um very nicely designed cardboard boxes that are custom made for us but it's just a cardboard box 
And inside that box, we have laser cut cardboard inserts. So behind me there, that big red box is a laser cutter. And we use recycled cardboard. We just put a sheet in there, hit go, cut out, you know, a dozen inserts. Um, and then put our, maybe Very nice. your address, Harrison. Very nice. Um, <laughs> and it's both fairly cheap and um, it works really well. It is about 50 cents more expensive than bare boxes off Uline per box to get oh, them that's... custom printed. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and then everything is compostable if you are the kind of person who chooses to compost. Very cool. So these are all laser cut inserts and they're all individual. Oh, nice. Modular. And yep. So it's modular. Um, and our newest Insert. thing that nobody has mentioned yet, and I'm not sure why, if nobody cares or nobody notices, but we have started adding an orange scent to our packaging. Um, our whole brand is orange. So that's awesome. You know, everything I we do, cardboard. all our marketing, it's very orange. And so we've started cardboard. adding a little bit of orange essential oils to the packaging. So it that's smells orange when you open it. Have you smelled them after they go through the mail? I wonder if it evaporates. We did once. We sent a package to ourselves. Nice. Um, it's, it's not there. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I don't know if that one was just traveling a short distance and it evaporated. That's more research needed. No, that's that's cool. But, no, I think it's I think it's awesome. I mean, really, like it's not a lack of like on our end. I would say it doesn't fall into the like we came to the conclusion that plastic bag was sufficient. It was sort of like we launched, we were like, we need to ship this in something, put it in a plastic bag yeah. and haven't had the time bandwidth to revisit it. Um, I'm curious, like what, you know, uh, there's a few companies I've come across who sort of do a lot of their own packaging in house. Like, I think what you have there is a nice elegant mix of like the modular thing is really important because otherwise you have a, like, you actually have to inventory individual packages for each item which can get pretty crazy um yeah so it's something we're, we're looking at right now i kind of like that um the the laser cut approach um i don't really have room for a laser so uh, uh oh uh oh not again 